Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts here at the Real Science Exchange. Tonight, we're back for the next installment of the Journal Club, styled after the traditional journal clubs convened around the globe and where we take a closer look at some of the newest research published in the world's leading dairy science journals. We welcome back Dr. Bill Weiss, Emeritus Professor from The Ohio State University, to the pub table once again. Bill selected a paper for tonight's discussion focusing on dietary energy and genomic residual feed intake in bred heifers. To gain additional insight and to liven up the discussion, we've also invited one of the authors to join us. Bill, welcome back to the Real Science Exchange, and thank you for taking on this role as our Journal Club Advisor. Uh, th thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Uh, before we dive into the paper, uh, what's in your glass tonight, Bill, for the conversation? Well, I've got a, a bottle of Moosehead Lager. So. All right, nice. Any story behind that, or that's just what was in the well, fridge? That was what was in the fridge, but uh, this is from graduate school. Norman St. Pierre and I always drank Moosehead All in right. celebration of his Canadian roots. So Yeah, good. Well, I was going to have a beer tonight, but uh, my son was home for spring break uh, last week, and there's no beer left in the fridge, so we're going back to the bourbon. Um, also joining us tonight is Dr. Matt Atkins from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, welcome to Exchange, Dr. Atkins, and uh, in anticipation of spring, do you have anything cool and tasty in your glass? Uh, thanks for the uh, invitation, Scott. I uh, appreciate it. Good to be here this afternoon, so... Yeah, I got a bit of coffee here, so <laughs> nice, tasty, cool so. coffee. <laughs> Good, yeah, very well. Great. We also have Dr. Clay Zimmerman back with us once again tonight. Uh, Clay, anything interesting in your glass? I don't know how interesting it is, but I, I do have my favorite diet beverage <laughs> today <laughs> in my in my handy thermos. All right. Good stuff. Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk, reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit balchem.com to learn more. All right. Um, Clay, the title of the paper that we're discussing tonight is The Effect of Diet Energy Level and Genomic Residual Feed Intake on Bread, Holstein, Dairy, Heifer Growth, and Feed Efficiency. The link for that paper will be in our show notes for our listeners. Um, Clay, can you give us uh, an overview of the paper we're discussing tonight? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's a really interesting study looking at, you know, the number of different factors related uh, related to to heifer rearing uh, economics and and efficiency. So so basically, the the study was set up to to look at uh, to look specifically at bred dairy heifers and uh, uh, the impacts on growth, uh, dry matter intake, and feed efficiency. Um, related to genomic residual feed intake, and also looking at two different dietary energy levels, a high energy diet versus a lower energy diet. So a uh, pretty interesting paper, you know, looking at looking at all these factors in, in bread heifers. Hmm. Interesting. I look forward to the conversation. Bill, how did you come to select this paper that we'll be reviewing tonight? Well, one, it's on, it's on heifers, and we haven't done anything on heifers. Uh, two, uh, it's a lot of energetics, and that's one of my major interest. So that's the two reasons mainly is something new and and there is a lot on energy. And I also think it's useful to producers or could be useful to producers. Mm -hmm. All right. Great. Thanks. Uh, Matt, to get us started, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Marshfield Research Center where the research took place? And could you also tell us a little bit about the background that went into uh, putting the study together? Yeah. So this, this study um, was conducted at the Marshfield Agriculture Research Station. Um, it's an excellent facility. This study with the bred heifers was conducted in, uh, it was in a pre-stall barn uh, with 16 identical pens. So we had, uh, each pen had uh, eight heifers in it and eight stalls. Uh, really well, well-designed uh, facility, very comfortable stalls, um, all in a, a headlock system as far as feeding 
drive-through TMR system where they can uh, very pre-access. There's very little stress in this facility. Um, so it's an excellent um, facility as far as comfort, uh, very little stress on these heifers. So, uh, typically, we see very good gains of heifers in this facility just because the just the, the stalls very comfortable uh, they don't have a lot of between the bunk and the free stalls literally it's a 10 15 foot walk so the amount of activity that they generally see in these facilities is uh, a bit less than you might see in a typical free stall or even a, a bedded pack facility just to, the size of the pens are quite a bit smaller than you might have in a commercial facility, which is pretty interesting to see, but excellent facility. Um, yeah, so the study was conducted in actually 2015, uh, kind of brainstormed ideas uh, between Kent Weigel, another co-author on the paper, and Pat Hoffman and Wayne Koblenz, uh, kind of bouncing around ideas on, hey, we got a lot of this genomic resid residual feed intake data that we can access or predict on, on uh, pretty much all of our animals are all genomic tested in the UW Madison dairy herd. So we can get this information fairly easily. So, and then we wanted to look at, so we can get this information, but we wanted to put a dietary kind of factor in this. Um, and one thing that we've been looking at fairly closely is the, especially energetics and energy intake on dairy heifers. And really what we're trying to do with a lot of our studies is just trying to control it. Um, oftentimes pregnant heifers can become overconditioned fairly quickly. They, uh, gains can get a bit out of control, especially uh, higher corn silage diets. So a lot of times we try to dilute the energy uh, using some kind of lower energy forage, whether it's straw or corn stove or, or other low energy, uh, lower quality hay. Uh, lots of different options. So we wanted to look at kind of how those two factors interact, the genomic RFI and then the uh, energy content of the diet. So it's kind of what our, our thought process was. So, so Matt, maybe, maybe for the benefit of our listeners, could you briefly explain what RFI is? Yeah. So RFI stands for residual feed intake. And I'm not an expert, to be honest. I'm not I don't, I haven't actually done RFI calculations, um, but the, the premise is, it's really the difference between the actual uh, energy intake and the expected, what you would predict based on equations. Um, so if it's a negative RFI, that means the animal ate less than predicted. If it's a uh, positive RFI, that means they ate more. So that means they were less efficient. So ideally, we would see animals with a negative RFI uh, prediction. So or, is that, so Matt, is that during lactation where that gets measured? Or can you measure it in these growing heifers as well? So from our data, it was in, it was from lactating cow data, collected over to over several years of data. Um, so you can, it's, it's fairly difficult in lactating cows, because it's a lot of data you got to collect, right? It's uh, intake, body body weight and condition score, uh, all the milk yields, uh, milk components. So there's a lot of input factors into to be able to calculate energy intake and output. Uh, heifers, it's actually pretty easy. Uh, it's just intake uh, and growth, and then body condition score to try to define the, the different composition of gains. Um, when we In this study, it was it was all based on predictions from lactating cow data. So these these RFI calculations were of a uh, predicted as a lactating cow. So we wanted to basically see if we so if we start breeding for cows that have a a more efficient or negative RFI, what what is that going to do uh, as far as when they're heifers? Is that going to also improve their efficiency? I got uh, on the on the diets. Well, one I you know this was a factorial, and whenever I review papers 
with factorials, I always ask, you know, obviously you hypothesized an interaction or there's no reason to do a factorial. What was your hypothesis with respect to the, well, first, I guess, for the audience, give a little background on the diets and then on the, why you expected an interaction between, you know, low and high efficiency and low and high energy diets. Yeah. So, yeah, good question, Bill. So, the yeah, the diets, so there's a high energy diet. So it's like a almost a 50-50 corn silage, alfalfa silage diet, fairly higher energy. I think the TDN was around 62 or 63% TDN. 63, yep. So it's a bit higher than what we balanced for. And then the fiber levels were a little bit lower than what we would typically balance for for pregnant heifers. It was like 45%. Um, and then we had the lower energy diet, which is more of our optimal gain diet. That was, uh, I think, what's 58, 59 percent. Yeah, 57. Yeah. And then the, the NDF was right around 50 percent NDF. Um, and that diet, I think, was about 25 percent corn silage, 50 so percent alfalfa silage, and then I think about 25 percent wheat straw, chopped straw. About 15 on straw was okay. 15. Yeah. So yeah, that, that low energy diet would be just a way, and we do this pretty often in our experimental diets, is just trying to use that straw as a way to increase fiber, but also lower energy content to try to really optimize the, the intakes for where they should be, and also to try to control energy intake. So it's kind of twofold with that lower energy diet is controlling intake and also uh, lowering the, the energy intake as well. So the um, so the diets the diets were really only supplemented beyond forage is just with mineral in this case, correct? Exactly. I think do we have urea in that? We often add urea to these diets. They were isonitrogenous, but I I, I think you hear yeah I don't I don't see, I don't see uh, urea in the diet. I think it, the protein came from the alfalfa mostly. Yeah. So yeah, and that and that study, the protein in the alfalfa must have been high enough to supplement. Those are pretty low proteins. We're running about twelve percent protein, which actually is for for dairy heifers, pregnant dairy heifers. It's we found that to be pretty adequate. So that high energy diet was obviously was excessive, uh, would cause excessive gains because the lower energy NDF will allow for higher uh, intakes. And also the energy content's higher, so it's going to both factors really contribute to excess energy intake. As far as the interaction between the diet and RFI level, um, yeah, we weren't really too sure what we'd expect. I guess I guess the hypothesis was we would see some sort of, especially with the efficiency, we would see some sort of interaction. Uh, we wouldn't expect it. As far as the, if you look at RFI, it you might not. It's a it's a bit complicated how it's calculated. So we weren't expecting much of a difference in intakes uh, between those. As far as that effect, um, but we definitely knew we would see something with the diets, just based on our knowledge that higher NDF diets is going to cause a um, reduction in intake. What we so, didn't expect was the result of of the uh, efficiencies and the gains was really pretty interesting. I don't know if we want to get into the results yet or not, but that's uh, that was pretty interesting. So, so Matt, how, how long were the heifers actually on these treatment diets? So they're four months, so it's a pretty long period of time, 120 days, so plenty of time to get really good growth data. Kind of the minimum that we do growth data is at least two months, about 60 days. Is that pretty much the kind of minimum that we like to go for eight weeks? Um, so we have decent data. Well, 120 days is a good chunk of time to, to get growth data. So. Um, as, as someone who doesn't do a lot of heifer diets, um, you, you formulated these diets for 0.8 and 1.1 kilograms of gain. How, how do you actually? you do that. I mean, I, I can balance dairy diets in my sleep, but I don't know how you pick, I know you pick the treatments or the gain, desired gains, but then how do you formulate a diet to, to meet those desired gains? 
Uh, yeah, it's so in, in this case, we used NDF as a way to predict intake. That's probably the hardest thing to do with heifer diets. And that's the one thing we did notice with the NRC model is that it didn't do a great job with predicting intakes for heifers. So what we did in this case is we use NDF. So we, we assume that heifers are going to eat about 1% of their body weight in NDF per day, okay. which is, if you look at some of the data from Hoffman and, and Koblenz, that, that sits pretty nicely, right? About 1% of body weight. And that carries true for anything above about 40% NDF diets. If you get below 40%, We've seen uh, it doesn't always actually probably restricted more by energy intake than than by uh, NDF the fill factor. Yes. So that's what we did first was just to predict uh, intakes based on the NDF content of the diet, and then uh, we inputted the uh, body weight and desired gain into the model. And then we balanced the diets based on that. So and just using the estimated either TDN or NEG from. Um, yep. the old NRC. Yeah, from NRC 2001. It actually worked fairly good, especially for, I, we did, had a pretty good discussion about that in the results. Um, it, may, it, it did miss on a little bit, I think, for the, the higher energy diets. So, Matt, I, you know, I'm curious, the, so the balancing for NDFs, but pretty interesting you know when you look at the results how would does does uh ndf digestibility what what role would that play in these heifer diets yeah that's a good question uh we have not looked at that i've wanted to do that where you take two corn silages that have identical uh, identical composition as far as energy or starch fiber but the ndf digestibility is is maybe higher using a BMR type corn silage. We haven't we haven't done that yet. That's something that would be in, really interesting. Is we haven't really looked at like the direct impact of NDF stability uh, on that because it's kind of when you use these lower energy, high fiber forages, usually they're pretty low energy NDF stability. So you're kind of yeah. you're that's one other factor. That's where you get the lower lower energy content too. Yeah, that's interesting. You, what you probably expect is that similar to lactating cattle, you probably see increased intakes. Um, that's what you likely expect, just a faster digestibility, faster digestion in the rumen. It's going to probably allow uh, faster uh, rumen flow. So that's just without any data. That's what I, I would figure would happen. But that's that's a good question. I've thought about that several times. So. I just uh, put a plug in for the new NRC. It does have NDF in the heifer intake equation now. So, oh, does it? Right. So hopefully just... it will do better than the last one. We knew that was a problem, but we didn't have the data. So the yeah. new one does do it. So. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Bill. I actually just got the book today. So, <laughs> so I'm uh, busy reading on that. So. Okay. Well, if, if you want to, again, on the big picture here, not on all the detail, but on the major measurements, would you kind of just go over on starting with some of the production measurements and then I'd like to talk about digestibility a little bit later, but yeah, so we can start with the intakes, I guess, first. So what we noticed was for at least dry matter intake, really very little effect of the RFI. So between the, the high and low RFI, really no effect on the intake or uh, there's no interaction with that. So, no. so, so Matt, you, you were feeding for a, a small amount of feed refusal, correct? Yeah, and that's what we typically do. Um, we're talking 2-3% of the dry matter offered. And that's that's what I suggest to producers. You don't, if, when you're feeding these lower energy diets with any kind of roughages in it, if you feed excessive amounts, it's going to cause them to sort. They're going to sort against that. That, uh, that lower energy feed stuff, and we've seen that before in some of these in some of these trials. That especially if you the chop size is too long, uh, even even feeding for two or three percent refusals, they're still going to sort it out. But by feeding for lower refusals, you're kind of forcing the animals to to eat that material. So, but that yeah, that's that's typically how we manage that 
those diets and it's pretty reasonable what we basically do is just score the bunks every day before we feed we're looking for just scattered particles through the bunk we don't want to see any piles sort of like a bunk scoring system for beef cattle yeah but when we look at the intakes the diet definitely had a pretty major effect um as far as the difference between the the high and low energy diets about a, a kilo difference um so about nine ten percent reduction in intake uh, so about two two and a half pounds of intake reduction so which is what we expect um as far as the ndf intake that's where that's where kind of a if you look at that that's the really proof right there it's right around 0.95 to one percent of a, a body weight intake per day so right on with what our what our predictions were yes um, it's it's amazing you know if you look at the kilos of ndf ndf intake they all ate right at five kilos of ndf yeah. that's pretty crazy isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah it was that was pretty interesting very consistent um uh, you know especially you know it's considering the digestibility of the the ndf and those two diets are quite different and you know if that was a lactating cow we would not expect that we'd expect the straw cows to eat less ndf and so that to me was quite surprising yeah yeah i guess it's really interesting with heifers they're, that's what makes them but they're not too hard to feed really they're, they're fairly straightforward compared to a lactating cow to be honest um, so that using ndf as an intake modifier is especially useful especially for pregnant heifers that's where it really uh, is useful for for pre for pre-breeding animals that probably may not have as much application really um so because you, you really they don't have as they're going to be their fill effects are going to be greater so you're going to probably this is probably more of a uh, situation that you use for for post-breeding your pregnant heifers so when we start looking at energy intakes, like you'd expect, uh, about a kilo difference in intake, that's going to result in energy can energy intakes are quite a bit higher, about one and a half uh, kilos of, uh, of TDN intake greater. So, and that kind of translates directly into what you'd expect for the, the growth of these animals. But across all those, any of those intake measurements, uh, dry matter or nutrients, we didn't see really any any uh, interaction there at all. Very consistent, really no effect of RFI, but definitely a major effect of the diet energy level and the, especially the diet NDF level. So. so then if we start looking at performance, so like the growth, and that's what, our, in heifers, that's what we mainly look at is growth and also condition by the two major factors um, that we uh, look at. So if we look at the, the daily gains, uh, across the 120-day study, we're talking about one point, right about 1.2 kilos of growth for these the high-energy animals, um, and those were not different between the high and low or uh, RFI animals on the high-energy diet. Right around 1.5, to 1.2. So what is that? About 2.4 pounds per day. Uh, definitely higher than what we would want them to be. <laughs> so these animals were getting very large by the end of this study. <laughs> the folks at the farm were like, what are we gonna do with these animals after we're done with <laughs> Put them on pasture for a few months just to try to control that growth a little bit more. Uh, yeah, they were, they were, they act, yeah, on, on the high energy diets, they averaged almost 2.6 pounds a day average daily gain. Yeah, so we're talking about a, a half pound more than what we would be targeting. Usually for these larger Holsteins, we're, we're shooting for about two, two pounds per day or, to keep up with their growth targets. So, what, what kind I, of change in body conditions desirable? Say over this was 120 days. So over three, three or four months, what kind of body condition score is desirable? Change in change in body condition score. We really don't want to see a lot of change in condition. We don't want to see a great amount of gain in condition. Okay. Uh, ideally, with heifers, we want to see three five at calving. So 
So in this this half a unit gain you got is is undesirable in those oh, high, high undesirable. Yeah, okay, okay. these were like finishing animals, but okay. they were they were over conditioned greatly. Um, because they started off at like a three, 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 four at the start. So those are about between what fourteen to sixteen months when they started. Yep. So we don't want to see a great increase if they're already at like a three, three. We don't want to see them increase by a half point. So that's likely going to lead to difficulties at calving and possibly at excessive uh, uh, fat loss in the early lactation. So, uh, so we don't want a, a over-conditioned animal coming into the first lactation. Did you see any differences in frame score, Matt? Yeah. So as far as the heights, uh, we didn't see much of a difference in gain of, of heights. Um, Across any of the treatments, any of the hip height growth, really, really no difference there, which is what we mainly use at our at our frame score. So really no difference in the frame of the animal. Just basically the int the extra gain was going towards fat fat gain. Do these uh, do these heifers end up down in the the Arlington herd at the University of Wisconsin? Uh, it depends on. It, that's a really interesting question because it depends on whether they're confirmed pregnant with a bull or a heifer calf. So if they're a bull calf, they are they're kept at the Marshfield station usually. Um, okay. That's just to keep the enough lactating cows in our facility. And then they're, they're, all the animals that are confirmed with a uh, heifer calf are shipped down to the uh, Arlington research, research facility because that's where we have all our heifer raising facilities. At so all the heifer calf raising facilities. Are okay, there. okay. So that's why they there's kind of a difference in where they're raised or they're they're calved out. Okay. So very rarely will they calve out a, a bull carrying heifer down at Arlington just because we can selectively keep them where they're needed. So I I I've seen the cows at Arlington. And I can attest they are large frame cows. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we. I've looked at this a few years ago, looking at the mature body weights. And they're large, yeah. Um, they're pretty good range too. We got some animals in third lactation that they're fifteen hundred to pounds to upwards of almost two thousand pounds. So a vast range in in uh, body size of mature cows, which when you're starting to get formulate ideas or management for, for heifers, that makes it a little difficult to try to come up with a mature body weight for the herd. So you're just going to have to take the average of, of those and use that as a, a way to predict or kind of figure out what your growth should be in your, your heifer rearing programs. But yeah, there's a lot of variation that we see even in the research herd. So. And we use a fairly selective, uh, we're fairly select in our bowl, uh, which bowls we use. And unlike the, the, on this daily gain, what, what baffled me was with the low energy diet on the, the high efficient animals, high R, the low RFI, high efficient animals, they gain, you know, substantially more than what you predicted. Um, yeah. and yeah. Why, why do you? Uh, everybody else did read the book, but that group didn't. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. what do you think is the biology behind that? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know either. Um, there's not a lot of literature on it, really, really very little. Uh, there's some good data from Australia looking at this, where they actually separated out like the top and bottom 10%. And they actually saw a fairly similar result, about a tenth of a pound, a tenth of a kilo, uh, difference um, and also reduction in the more efficient animals had lower intakes as well. So it follows their data fairly closely, except for the intake part of it. Uh, yeah, 0. 0.94 kilos for the for the high efficiency animals compared to 0. 0.85. So what a tenth of a kilo, but so that's about a 0. 0.2 pounds difference. So 
more gain so, for the high efficient animals on that low energy diet. So, so, so Matt on the on the high RFI animals, the ones that would be less efficient on the low energy diet, would you have expected them to eat more than the cow than the heifers on the uh, on the low RFI um, treatment? Then, not necessarily. Um, okay. Not necessarily. What we actually saw is they ate the same amount, but they gained more. So that they were in in theory they were still more efficient. It just they were a little as far as far as how they responded. The the genomics responded a little bit different than what we might might expect. The RFI is categorized or theoretically it's the same production, but with lower intakes. That's assuming the same the same body weight, same production, everything, but just a slightly lower intakes. But in this case, we had the same intakes, but a bit higher growth, higher performance out of those heifers. So it's either something metabolically um, makes them more efficient. We don't really know, to be honest. We didn't take we didn't take blood samples, liver samples. So we didn't really know what was going on inside the animal. Yeah, so, you know, I. I find it interesting again that they they all no, no matter which treatment they were on, they all ate the same kilos of NDF. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's, it works pretty well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Makes it, easy, makes it easy to predict what they're gonna eat. Yeah, that's what I love about using NDF as a intake predictor of heifers. It's beautiful. It really can work really well. So. I'm glad that the NRC includes that now because so, it's hopefully will help to improve the NDA, the intake predictions. So hopefully I, I've seen slowly producers are starting to, to use that too, using these higher fiber feedstuffs, higher uh, looking at some warm season grasses. Uh, some, uh, so Matt, how would you compare this, this uh, strategy for bred heifers? compared to limit feeding yeah they're, they're both good options right um, they both have uh, good qualities to them so limit feeding uh, it's it does take a lot of management right so you gotta your your diets have to be balanced very well and you have to be on top of your management as far as dry matter of your feeds and also monitoring the intakes of those animals and doing body, actually body measurements, actually weighing your animals on a routine basis every few months. So you can track that um, is really important because if you're off on that, that limit feeding program, that can have major effects, whether if you're underfeeding or overfeeding. So it's really, really important to manage that because uh, it's a little less forgiving than with the using a high fiber forage system. So what so when you're when when you are limit feeding, how often do you need to make those adjustments in amount of feed offered? So that's a good good question. So we usually do that I think at the farm. They the, the Marshfield ARS they limit feed up there because they that's one of the locations that's they've been doing it for almost twenty years now with Pat Hoffman when he when he's uh, was doing his uh, work up there. Um, so yeah, they, they typically are going to adjust them every couple months, every month or so. They're going to adjust those intakes. Um, so yeah, but it, it's hard because you got to think like, you got to be figuring out like, what is this animal going to eat? Um, and kind of the what they do at the Marshfield Station, that's kind of, it works really well. And Pat showed this is that what you should be feeding for is enough feed for them to have enough until. So if we feed at 8 a.m., there should be out of feed by 5 or 6 p.m. So about 10 hours, 8, 10 hours of feed available. If you have if you have feed left the previous the next day, that's obviously you need to ratchet it back. If they're out too early, it's kind of you're you're underfeeding them. So kind of almost an art to it, but uh, Penn State's actually got a nice formulating system on limit feeding. They got a whole system that, that Jen Hydrix uh, developed 
pretty nice formulator uh, based on all their, their data. And I know Wayne Kovitz used that in one of his feeding studies. And that worked, actually worked really well for him. He, he was pretty impressed. He would do the, he'd actually adjust his would be, I think every two, every one or two weeks when they were on study, and he would adjust them up based on the predicted body weight gains. And he said it worked pretty well. So, but it is, it's a, it is a fairly management intense system because you got to watch your intakes uh, and also you got to manage the feed bunk really closely. Yep. You got to be in there pushing feed up within an hour after you feed. <laughs> Otherwise, they're going to push that feed away and then they're going to be stretching for it and then they're going to lead to uh, shoulder sores and uh, front feet issues. When they're pushing forward, it causes them to wear on the inner claws of their, their feet. And that's going to, that's something you got to, you got to manage. So you can manage that by pushing it more frequently. So every, every hour for the first three or four hours until they get full and then they'll come back and uh, kind of feed more sporadically, but especially the first few hours, you need to push up more frequently. So. I'm assuming on that limit feeding, you got to have plenty of bunk space too, or. Yep. Yep. That's really critical. You need to have a spot at the bunk for every single animal, which in some facilities, as you could imagine, that's probably not the case, especially with heifers. Or some of them get pretty overcrowded. So, in those situations, limit feeding probably is not not a great strategy to to, to go with. Um, so that's kind of where we come up with this. Uh, we've been working on this kind of um, high fiber forage system using ad an ad lib and intakes. You can feed basically as, as much as they can eat in the day. It's really, uh, it's fairly simple to manage. Just really got to watch NDF, get a good analysis of the of the feed. So especially NDF protein. Uh, but as far as managing the the diets, is pretty simple. Uh, a bit more simple than with uh, with limit feeding. But you still got to go up and push feed up regularly because they're gonna sort through that that uh, longer stem material depending on how you have a chop. So it's not a, it's not a system that can't go without managing, right? So still, still has its quirks. When so. you formulate these diets to, I'm going to say you're just limiting energy, but letting them add lip dry matter intake, but limiting energy, which I think is the right way to do all this stuff. But, you know, you expect them to eat less feed and, but you had pro, I like say crude protein percent was the same. So would you, and now for research purposes, I know there's reason to do things, but if you expect this diet to reduce intake, would you recommend, you know, a higher concentration of crude protein? So that intake of protein was, was the same rather than concentration. Yeah, that's probably a good point, Bill. Yeah, you probably would have a little bit, a uh, touch higher protein level in that. So you have a similar it's, ob yeah. it's obvious you had enough protein because they gained just what you expected. So yeah. you weren't limited on protein, but. But yeah, you can have a little bit of a uh, safety factor there. Yeah, 11 and a half, 12 percent is kind of on the low end. So maybe you can bump it up to 12 and a half, 13 percent. But yeah, based on the data, they we didn't see any difference in growth. Um, we, it wouldn't adversely affect them with that, the lower protein intakes. And, uh, actually, so, if you look at the energy or the, the protein requirements in NRC, it's, it's right about nine and a half, ten percent of the diet protein for, for heifers. So we can probably 11 and a half, 12 percent for these animals is probably adequate. So. I don't think so. Matt, were the results in in feed efficiency in your study were they were they what you were expecting to see? Uh, yeah, so we yeah similar to the the body weight gain, uh, we saw a, an interaction with these two with the uh, feed efficiency. Um, so yeah, that was that was really interesting. So really, no effect of RFI when they were fed the the high energy diet, and I don't know what that's caused by. Why do we see an effect of that? of the RFI on when they fed a higher efficiency diet or high energy diet. Um, but when we fed the lower energy diet, we saw that, yeah, that higher gain on the, the high efficiency animals. 
yeah, that held that pulled through and caused they were they were more efficient compared to the, the lower uh, efficient animals. So pretty pretty interesting. So really no effect of our wasn't an effect of RFI on the, the high energy diet, but we did see an improvement in feed efficiency when fed the uh, the lower energy diet. And I don't know what I, I don't know if it's because they were fed for the the optimal gain. That's possibly one one reason or on whether they're on the high energy diet that they just were so efficient uh gaining so quickly that really there's no effect there wasn't room for an effect to be more efficient so i don't yeah it's a kind of a unique thing that we saw with this so we don't have all the answers with that so i quite understand why we saw that man i'm curious if you uh looked at economics um on the various treatments and if so what were your conclusions yeah, we haven't done the economic calculations, but you would expect that the yeah the, the animals that were fed the lower energy diets um, would be more ideal for at least optimal gain. Those animals on the higher energy diets would be obviously gain more. So they're like, but these are not feedlot animals. They're not beef cattle, so we don't want them to gain that much. <laughs> you you don't you don't want that not, half a point increase in body condition score. Yeah, if we're in a feedlot situation, we'd be like, oh man, this is great. But I'm like, uh, yeah, not not so good. So, but as far as with the lower energy diets, the um, they're actually probably more cost effective than if you were to, uh, as far as uh, because those lower energy feeds and normal circumstances would be a bit lower cost. Now wheat straw, that's that can get costly, right? We're talking <laughs> it's, it's more expensive than alfalfa silage some days. Um, but you can find a lot of other uh, lower energy high fiber forages out there or grill them. Um, Matt, corn. do you do you ever use corn stover in these half in these bread heifer diets? To dilute yeah. the energy. Yeah, we have. Yeah, we have. Um, Wayne Cobalt did a nice study. He actually looked at uh, straw, corn stover, and gamma grass. Gamma grass is a warm seeding perennial. Um, yeah, corn stover worked really well. Um, the one issue we saw with that is it 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 does get they sort it out pretty quickly. Um, so you got to probably grind that to fairly small particle size. But it can I think it can work. It actually worked. It did its job. It, it reduced uh, energy intake or uh, dry matter intake and energy intake. And the body weight gains were almost optimal. They were right around uh, 0.9 kilos or about right around two pounds oh. per day. So uh, compared to an ad libitum fed diet with a, high, a higher energy ad lib diet. So yeah, it was, it can work. And most years it's pretty low cost depending on the demand. Um, but there's other good forages out there too. There's uh, sorghums work pretty well with this. Sorghum sedan grass can work well, if it, especially if it's not a BMR type. Uh, probably wouldn't use a BMR type with this kind of system, but a mature sorghum sedan grass can work excellent with this. Uh, and then most warm season perennials can work excellent too. So switch grass probably work pretty good. Uh, gamma grass works excellent because it's all leaf material. So there's very little refusal of that. So it works really well. But yeah, there's lots of options. Really, it just comes down to the cost of those and which ones kind of best fit the management style for the for the farm operation. Matt, if you if you looked at the nutrient digestibility of the diet, were um... What what did you see there, and were you surprised by any of the findings? Yeah, really, no difference in RFI, as we expect. I don't think we'd, I don't know if we'd expect a difference in digestibility between animals with different RFI or not. Um, mainly, the effects were due to diet, so lower, lower digestibility for the uh, low energy diets. So, which you would expect, right? That. No. Higher NDF, especially with that wheat straw in there, it's kind of drags down the NDF digestibility and then of the total diet digestibility. digestibility. So not not too unexpected with that. Um, but yeah, it's pretty interesting. 
I'm a, my, on on beef cattle, but RFI actually, you know, started with growing animals, and we we kind of usurped it for dairy. But there's been studies that they try to partition the improvements in efficiency, and digestibility is usually credited with a portion of the high high. I'll get it mixed up. High efficient animals, low low RFI, tend to digest better but they also tend to produce less heat and you know, lots of lots of things just add up so the the lack of a difference here and they we're not talking big numbers so it may have been not enough not enough sensitivity and those are typically feedlot diets too so that might be it but yeah I, that's that's a good point i don't I, I do a lot of well for my my career i've i think i weighed about 150 tons of manure in digestion <laughs> trials i figured that up one day that's a lot uh, it's a, a lot of manure will be plotted individual cows or that individual cows oh, that's, that's a lot of cows and and so i look at digestion data a lot and you know these look very reasonable i might add but um you know, approximately organic matter digestibility, if you don't have a lot of fat, is approximately equal to TDN. It's, it's very close. And these TDNs are the, your OMDs, which I'm going to just say are approximately TDNs, are a lot lower than your estimated TDNs, which doesn't surprise me. But it would also mean that these cows are getting less energy from the diet than you predicted using NRC. Do you, do you think that's, you know, if you, if you would have put in measured energy values, they would have done worse than what your, what NRC would have predicted. You're saying if you would have dumped in the digestibility data directly. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you wouldn't, you know, again, approximately use, use OMD as TDN and then calculate energy intakes from that, they'd be a lot less than your, your energy intakes with the estimated TDNs, which means these cows are doing better energetically yeah. than the model predicts the old model the new model is a little bit different but is it you think that's that where these cows are better than we the, the heifers sorry the heifers are better than we think they are on energy yeah very likely yeah you, you see with cows right that genetics yes. they have big roles so wouldn't expect any different with heifers so but yeah i think yeah with the new nrc i i I'm looking forward to trying to look and see how that compares to some of our data. So yeah, I'd like to, if you can't do that, cause we, we didn't have a lot of heifer data, so that'll help too. And just see if there's some deficiencies in the new model. Yeah. Bill, Bill, I was curious if, has this, do you know, has this has the data from this paper been run through the new I, NACE? I, I, I um, have not done it. I doubt it has because of the timing on coming yeah. out. I very much doubt unless somebody's done it since it came out, but. It would not have been used in the evaluation. The timing wasn't right. Yeah. Matt, I was uh, intrigued by how you did your manure collections <laughs> in this study. Can, can, can you describe how the manure collections were done? Uh, a lot of hand shoveling. I'll just explain that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, in that facility, it actually makes it fairly... Not, not difficult to, to do manure collection. We do it on a full pen basis. So um, it's not just hand grabs, uh, uh, spot sampling, like we often would do. That's what we're doing now. Uh, but we did whole pen collection. So basically what that means is we take the animals out of the pen, clean the entire pen, remove all the bedding so we don't have bedding contamination. Um, don't have anything on the, we basically brush off everything off of those any kind of sand or material off the beds because uh, that'll increase your ash contamination uh, and then we put the animals back in we put dividers between all the pen gates in the alleys to, to reduce any kind of carry over between pens and then we take out the automated uh, mechanical scrapers and then we let the uh, manure accumulate for two days and then we come back two days later and shovel it out <laughs> well luckily we have skid loaders that works most of the time but, uh, that gets about 75 percent of it probably then the rest we got to hand shovel into the, the skid loader so yeah it, it's a uh, it works actually fairly well because you're getting everything that the animal excreted um 
we've done this in pre-breeding heifers too. In a previous paper that we published, similar similar design. Um, so yeah, but it's a it's a it's a lot of work. Yeah, doing spot sampling. But Bill can attest that yeah, doing a whole pen or full collections is not for the worry. <laughs> you're, you're using heifers. You're lucky. They only crap out <laughs> half as much as a cow. So yeah. it's a lot easier. Usually, it's not as liquid as a cow either. <laughs> yeah, so. that's true. So it's usually fairly, especially on the low energy diet, it's pretty firm. On the, the high energy diet, uh, a little bit more loose than a, uh, a feces. So, but yeah. So then we just measure it. We take the uh, collect the manure, um, sample it, and then take it back to the lab, analyze it for, for dry matter, ash, NDF protein, and estimate the full uh, excreta of, the, of those nutrients. So we got a weight of the manure, the, the percent of the, each nutrient. So it's actually pretty unique, kind of not many other people do that with whole pen collections. So, so the, the numbers, the nitrogen with urine, you got to be able to care for what the other numbers look very reasonable. I mean, very, very yeah. reasonable. Yeah, the nitrogen number you think about, you probably get some contamination from the from the urine. So, yeah. And technically that would be, the nitrogen in the urine was already digested. Yeah. So, um, so that's a good point, Bill. Well, like I said, the dry matter and NDF, all those look uh, very good. Very, no, I don't have any problems with those at all. Yeah, yeah, it's right around 58% Digest, dry matter digestibility for the high energy ones and about 50, 51% for the lower energy. So about seven percentage units difference. So yeah, much lower than our TDN calculator. Yeah, it's, so. it's, they said it'd be interesting to plug this through and again, just assume, well, the new model doesn't use TDN, so you're gonna have to do a little bit of calculation, yeah, but you can get you can get a number. I'll have to calculate MEs, yeah. yeah. But again, this you have almost a 10, 10 unit difference in fiber, in vivo fiber digestion, and they ate the same NDF. I just find that very intriguing, very intriguing. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, now, kind of based on your findings here, Matt, I'm just curious if you've got any follow up studies um, planned to kind of fill in some of the blanks. Yeah, so this was conducted in 2015, so it's a bit of a dated study. It's a we got, got it published about four or five years after we got all the data completed after the grad student, uh, Kaliana Williams, finished. Um, we actually did a follow-up study in 2016, uh, basically the same design of the study, the Latin square, or not Latin square, but a factorial, two by two factorial. Um, same RFI factors, high and low, and then we, but instead of that, we did uh, uh, limit feeding versus ad libitum feeding. So we had a, an ad libitum fed diet, and then we had the same diet that was also limit fed. So uh, we wanted to see if there are similar efficiency differences would happen with that. So uh, that one should be published this year. We gotta get that data all wrapped up. So things tend to take a little time for me. So it, uh, sometimes when you have grad students, it takes a, <laughs> especially with an extension appointment to get kind of in lots of different directions so i'm sure bill can attest to that so so but, uh, so, so matt you yeah. you monitor these heifers for 150 days into lactation once they calved any were there any findings uh there yeah really we didn't see really any differences in lactation performance across any of the treatments milk production the same um really no effect there no difference in fat or protein uh, percentages across the, the treatment. So obviously those animals that were fed for higher gains, we didn't see much of an effect of a, a negative effect on lactation performance, so, which you would have thought maybe some effect. I think the thing to take away from is that if you were to keep feeding these animals like that all the way up to calving, we probably would have ran into some problems. <laughs> But these animals, we typically dry them off, especially heifers are dried off 60 days prior to calving. And they're put onto a, a, a lower energy dry cow diet. Um, so similar to what we would feed the rest of the cows. Um, 
So that probably helped control gains for those last 60 days. Um, and some of those animals had another four or five months before calving. So they probably, there was some probably effect that might've been diminished between the end of the study and then the, when they calve. So were, that, that's something were, to consider too. So. Were there any differences? I'm not sure it was in the paper. Maybe it was. Were there any differences in body weight of these of the of these animals at calving or, or body condition score so i have to look at i don't think i have that data um because we at the marshfield location we didn't start taking body weights at calving until this year okay so i don't okay. have that data we do at, at the arlington facility they take body weights within a one week after calving but we don't have that data for marshfield so that's why we didn't include it okay um, but the calf body weight was pretty interesting. Um, the ones at the Arlington facility, I think, were generally smaller calf body weights. Obviously, because there are heifers, all the ones that were cat, all the calves were born at Arlington were smaller because they're, they're yeah, heifers. Four, four and a half kilos. Yeah, and then all the ones, the, the <laughs> calves born at Marshfield were generally larger. <laughs> They're bull calves, so that's something interesting. It doesn't really follow the treatments, but it's some interesting observation that we had, and we actually had to include location in the model um, to try to remove some of that variation. Do just do the location, but yeah, it's interesting that we didn't see a, a, a massive, like a, a negative response due to that really high gains, but. Again, I think if we had fed that diet all the way up to closer to calving, that we probably would have, we might have seen a, a more negative effect. So, really no effect on dystocia or uh, any of the lactation performance data. Bill, we missed any big uh, topics you'd like to cover in, in the uh, podcast today. No, I just I'd like Matt to kind of give a, a big picture take home on if I was a producer, what what would I do here with using, you know, we realize it's only one experiment, but what, what can they take home or a nutrition professor or, or a, a producer, what can he take home and apply this to his farm? Because I think there's stuff that's directly applicable today on what, what you found. Yeah, so as far as the, the takeaways from the study, I think the big thing is that the diet energy and the fiber really can be useful to, to control body weight growth of heifers. So using NDF and the diet to really use that as a control measure for, for dry matter intake and then making sure you're balancing properly for the energy content of the diet to meet the uh, needs of the of, of heifers. So. But if you know the NDF content of the diet and the, the body weight of the animals, you can fairly easily predict what the animal's going to yep. eat. So that's yep. kind of the, the main takeaway from this. Uh, we didn't really see a, a major effect of the RFI. It, it looks like it's not going to have a negative effect on the animals as far as having a, 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 a negative RFI. But you might see some response of, of being more efficient animals. But uh, I think we'll have to get more data on that to really confirm the results. So. But yeah, definitely use of NDF and, and, uh, can be especially useful for uh, feeding uh, dairy heifers, especially pregnant dairy heifers. No, no, to me, you know, this limit feeding is, is, it works, but there's some, you know, social issues, some animal welfare concerns. And so this limiting, letting the heifers self-limit by feeding high fiber diets, I think is really a, a very, a better approach. I, I realize they're both essentially the same. You're limiting energy intake, but I think this is a, a, a easier to apply approach. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. And probably if you look at the byproduct markets and protein markets, it's pretty yeah. ugly. Yeah. Uh, to be, <laughs> uh, I don't, feeding a limit feeding diet right now would be pretty costly yeah. if you're starting to put bean meal in any even distillers grains are pretty costly yep. so i think if you cannot look at the economics these higher fiber lib diets can be fairly effective and especially economically 
then you know with RFI, I'm sure I don't follow genetics, but I'm sure more and more people are going to be selecting for RFI on, on cows. And at, at the least, like you said, it, it's not going to affect your decisions on heifer growing. Um, the, the low energy diets still work just fine on, on high or low, low RFI, high efficient animals, which you assume are going to be the ones that most people are selecting for. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's definitely not going to have a major effect on negative. It won't have any implications really on the heifer side. If, if any, it'll have a positive. Yeah. And it, it, you, know, you, may, you may be able to even limit them a little, little more, <laughs> throw a little more fiber in that because to get the, they still grew more than you expected and yeah a touch um, more yeah a touch more yeah but not not anything outside of where we'd be yeah, targeting, not, so. not 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 an issue thing but you might actually be able to even shave it back kick a little more fiber in and shave intake back just a little bit more yeah if we could really hone in on the groups yeah. as far as the genetics of the groups yeah. that that's a bit of a challenge on most farms as far yeah. as trying to figure out the, the, the genetics and the individual groups that's That'd be a challenge, I think, on most production farms. So, but across all the, with both groups, it performed well, I think. Yep. Yep. So, so Matt, one thing I'm I'm interested in have have you? Uh, so, I live in Maryland, in the Mid Atlantic, and we we plant a lot of small grains for cover crops here. Yeah. Yeah. Have Have you all done any research with small grain silages because? You know, you can adjust your harvest time, and you know, to to get to to get a certain NDF level that may maybe work may work better in these heifer diets. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, if you start looking at probably that uh, heading to to boot stage, heading to to doe stage, that'd be pretty almost ide ideal forage for inclusion of these these heifer diets. One thing to consider, and you mentioned it earlier, was the NDF data stability. Right, can be pretty high in those cereal grain forages. Um, mm -hmm. But that's like that's probably more work that we got to do to kind of see what effect that NDF data stability has. But yeah, you got a lot of flexibility with those. Uh, Wayne Koblenz did a a lot of work with triticale okay. here at Marshfield, a pile yeah. of work. Uh, really defined really well the kind of change in quality going from vegetative to, to boot into the reproductive stages. So, uh, yeah, and basically to find that anything like boot stage, ideal for lactating cows, kind of that, but anything after that would probably be more directed towards uh, dairy heifers or would be uh, probably right around that uh, flowering to, to soft dough that, or milk stage would be really good quality for, for dairy heifer diets. So. So, yeah, that's a good point. So, gentlemen, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but the lights just flickered. That's uh, that means it's last call, and I'm out of Woodford's. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> we best be moving on. Tonight's last call question is brought to you by Niasure Precision Release Niacin. Niacin is a proven vasodilator for heat stress reduction and a powerful antilipolytic agent for lowering high blood NEFA in transition cows. Protected with Balchem's proprietary encapsulation technology, you can be sure it is being delivered where and when your cows need it. Learn more at balchem.com slash Uh Bill, you had a nice kind of wrap up there before. Um, is, there, is there anything else you'd like to add to, 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 to the kind of closing comments in terms of practical things that people could take home from this conversation today? Well, again, I, I'm, I'm not a heifer expert by any stretch. But if if this is and from what what Matt was saying, I think it is. But you know, if if this would work with forages other than straw because of cost. But you know, we have mature grass hay up the wazoo here, and if that would work, it it's you know it gets good growth rates, the proper growth rates. It doesn't take a lot of management and managing feed bunks and all that when you restrict feed, uh, and, and it it's it it. It works fine. So I, I think that's the big thing is just use what we know on energy intake, fiber intake to, to get the desired gains rather than artificially restricting feed. But that's my personal opinion. So, yeah. Clay, anything to add? Any key takeaways for you? I, 
I think they did it. I think both Bill and and Matt did a great job summarizing here. I I, I personally prefer this approach of limiting uh, the energy density <laughs> through uh, through increasing fiber o- over the limit feeding. It is a lot easier to manage in the field, I think. So uh, yeah, no, I've. This is a really interesting paper. So thanks for sharing it with us, Matt. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Glad it could be useful. So yeah. Any final words, Matt, you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, just, uh, I don't really have any words, I guess. So if you have questions, you can obviously contact me, um, BW. But yeah, I think uh, Bill and Clay's uh, definitely summarized it well. So I don't have much to add, I guess. All right. Very well. Well, we'll put your contact information in the show notes if that's all right. Yeah, and that way yeah. people can get a hold of you. Perfect. With that, we're going to call it to a close, gentlemen. So I want to thank uh, Bill, Matt, and Clay for sharing this research and for being part of this year's uh, Journal Club. Uh, we know that professors and students are using these segments as part of their curriculums. So we appreciate all the hard work that, uh, that folks put into these overviews. As always, I also want to thank our loyal audience for joining us here today, once again, around the uh, Real Science Exchange table. Hope you had fun. Hope you learned something. And I hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions, and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.